0: All right, guys, come on in and grab a seat. Come on in and grab a seat. We're going to get started with our time of preaching. All right, I'm going to go ahead and pray, and then we will start. Father, I thank you for sending your son, Jesus, to reconcile us to yourself. Um, By nature, through choice, through our actions, um, we have been more than content as the human race to live alienated from you, and that's a real problem. Because you're our source of life, you're our source of love. We were designed to receive love from you and give love to one another. And since we have not often (laughs) received that love from you, we don't have love to give one another. And then we find the world fractured and broken as it is, full of people who are more like us than we want to admit. But because of Jesus, God, everything can be made new. That you took death and turned it into life. That you can take broken people and turn them into someone beautiful. And so I pray you would give us hope this morning that you are a redeemer. Whatever spot we find ourselves in this morning, um, you are a redeemer and your resurrection matters. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Um, So quick question before we get started. Have you ever witnessed an event that you just couldn't believe you were seeing with your own eyes? Does that ever happen to anybody? Right? Um, Mine happened three weeks ago. What happened three weeks ago, I think I saw the wildest thing I've ever seen on TV. and It was Will Smith slapping Chris Rock. Now, uh, I bring it up, okay, I don't want to make a lot of whatever, but I bring it up because no one knew how to react to it. Everyone felt conflicted about it. And you could analyze and make that story, that event and the effects of it about a lot of things. You could make it about celebrity culture. You can make it about gender. You can make it about race. You can make it about mental health. You can make it about marriage. You can make it about masculinity. You can make it about comedy. You can make it about trauma. Or you can make it about group anxiety or group think. And these are just some of the pieces I saw online. And not only could you view it through different lenses, but we all felt differently at an emotional level about it. If you haven't seen it, whatever. You don't need to see it. I'm not encouraging you to go watch it or whatever. But, like, probably you saw it, right? This is my point. And, and as it happened, you probably felt different things. Some people, I think, felt skepticism. Did that just happen? Right? It's like Tom Hanks stabbing somebody. You just don't expect it. It's like Will Smith, right? Like, it's Will Smith. Was it staged, right? I mean, Chris Rock's either a, a real professional or that was really staged, right? Um, anger, how could he do that? How could he, you know, for some, for some, some folks, how could he usurp Jada's agency and not let her defend herself as a woman. This is toxic masculinity. On the flip side, I'm glad he protected his wife. How could Chris Rock mock a woman's health condition? Is there to be punched, not slapped. Anxiety. What's this going to mean for our world? Will people be more emboldened to use violence, assuming no repercussions? Stand-up comedians kind of wondering, do I need to hire security detail for every show for a job that I don't get paid much to do in the first place? On a a serious note, some black folks I know wondered if this event would contribute to the lie from the pit of hell that black men are inherently dangerous and violent and can't be trusted, that it would reinforce a terrible stigma rooted in lies. For some people, it wasn't anxiety or anger or skepticism. It was just sadness. Will must be going through a lot. He walked hundreds of steps, didn't calm down. I'm so sad my kids had to see that. On and on it goes. What I want you to catch is we all respond differently to the same events. None of us are completely neutral. Again, I bring the slap up because it's an event that no one doesn't have an opinion about. Everyone reacted to that event. And not only the event, but the implications of that event for our lives or the lives of those around us. And today I want to talk about an event that we also have a reaction to. And I want us to carefully consider what our reaction to the event is. And that event is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And I want us to be honest about our reaction because it matters a whole lot. And to to, to talk about the resurrection, I'm going to base what I talk about in the accounts in John's gospel in John chapter 20. So if you guys have Bibles, turn to John chapter 20. If you don't, the words will be up here on the screen. It says, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. She saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb, so she went running to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where to put him. So John says this happens the first day of the week, Sunday, about a day and a half after Jesus was crucified, Good Friday, and it says, Mary and a group of women go to the tomb. They realize Jesus, uh, the stones roll away. The body of Jesus is gone. They were going to embalm Jesus, to put spices on him, to prepare him for a proper Jewish burial. And when she and the other ladies realize the body isn't there, she freaks out, thinking that the officials or grave robbers have taken the body. So she, t- she takes off to tell the other disciples. And so when she tells uh, Peter and John, by the way, the disciple, if you're new to John's gospel, the disciple Jesus loved is John himself, which is a really funny way to describe. You, you're going to see he, has got a, he's, he really likes himself. So he says, uh, um, she goes to tell Peter and John. Again, they were both close to Jesus, although John wants you to know Jesus was a little closer to him. All right, verse 3. At that, Peter and the other disciple went out heading for the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and got to the tomb first. He's like, he loved me more, and I'm faster than him. <laughs> Stooping down, he saw the linen clothes lying there, but he did not go in. And I love that John's bragging about how fast he is here. It's like an Uncle Rico moment in ancient Palestine. A little humble brag. But either way, they get there, and they also realize he's not there. Verse 6. Then following him, Simon Peter also came. He entered the tomb and saw the linen clothes lying there. The wrapping that had been on his head was not lying with the linen clothes, but was folded up in a separate place by itself. So it's weird that Jesus' clothes aren't there, or sorry, that his clothes are there, but his body's not there, okay? Um, Grave robbers, the only thing valuable, this isn't a culture where you could like, you know, take organs for transplants. That's, That's not a financial thing yet. Uh, In Jewish culture, dead bodies are viewed as very unclean. Uh, So the only thing of value would not be the body, it would be what he is wrapped in, the linen he is wrapped in. And so grave robbers, right, like if they're going to do that, they'd take what he's wrapped in. They wouldn't take the body and leave the valuable thing. And then on top of that, uh, government officials, they had no need to take this body. If anything, they wanted to really make sure everyone knew he was dead to make an example of him. That's why they left him on the cross as long as they could. If it weren't for Passover, he would have been out there longer. Rome would leave people on crosses for weeks at a time, historians tell us. And so it's like, man, where is he? This just makes no sense. The body's gone, um, but the clothes aren't there. And apparently Jesus is a very neat and tidy guy. If you stayed at your house, he would fold up the bedding when he was done, put it by the washer. So just struggling to compute. Verse 8 says, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, we're not going (laughs) to get over that fact, then also went in and saw and believed, for they did not yet understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to the place where they were staying. Um, And so again, John believes, he starts to testify about this. Uh, He also notes that he and the other disciples, they didn't understand initially what was going on, but now they are starting to get it. It's like a light bulb moment. Verse 11, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she was crying, she stooped to look into the tomb. She saw two angels in white sitting where Jesus' body had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you crying she says, because they have taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've put him. So after John and Peter went back to their houses, Mary stood outside the tomb. She's crying. And they say, woman, why are you crying? And by the way, the, the, the word woman here, don't think like woman, you know, like don't think that. <laughs> the word woman here in the Greek, is it's an honoring term. It's an endearing term. Um, it's not, it's not what I just described. It's more like when I'm talking to Olivia and I say, girl, why are you crying? To prove it's endearing, it's the same phrase Jesus called his mother Mary while he died on the cross. It's far from disrespectful in the Greek. After the angels say this, she gets the surprise of her life. Verse 14, having said that she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know it was Jesus. Woman, Jesus said to her, why are you crying? Who is it that you're seeking? Supposing he was the gardener, she replied, sir, if you carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will take him away. And then verse 16, it says, Jesus said to her, Mary. Turning around, she said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And so at this point, you just have to think, Mary Magdalene must be desperate. She wasn't seeing or thinking clearly. Her grief must have been overwhelming. But Jesus puts a, an end to her grief and adds to her confusion. He, with one simple word, he says, Mary. And she knows, like it's him. Uh, again, uh, with my daughter Olivia, when she wakes up in the middle of the night to a scary dream, As I walk in and it's still dark, for a second she's real nervous until I say, live, it's me, live, it's me. She knows she's safe at the sound of my voice. When Mary hears Jesus, she knows it's him. She knows where she is, who she is, and more importantly, who he is. She knows she's safe at the sound of his voice. Verse 17 says, don't cling to me, Jesus told her says, I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them what he had said to her. So Jesus essentially saying, listen, it's all good. I'm not going anywhere. You don't have to hang on to me to keep me. I'm going to be here for a little while. I'm not leaving to the Father just yet. I know he's going to have about 40 days. But could you go and tell the other disciples what's happened and what I'm about to do? And what I want you to catch here is that the first gospel preacher in, in the history of the world is a woman. The first person called to testify to the resurrection as a woman at a time and in a place when a woman's testimony in court was inadmissible. Again, I think some of us, we think the Bible was put together as like a conspiracy to control people and to give credibility to a new religion that gave advantages to its leaders. If that was true, you would not include that women were the first witnesses unless it was just true. This isn't 2022 where diversity is being championed, having a woman CEO is applauded, helping you get a contract. This is, no, this is, they don't listen to women. And John goes, it was women. And again, he'd have no problem saying it was him. Right, right? Like we know. <laughs> again, including this in the account doesn't make any sense unless it's just true. And again, if this is true, this resurrection, this event, if it histori- if it happened, it changes everything. This is why it's so important. If it didn't happen, nothing else about Christianity matters. Some people think Christianity is good. You know, even if the resurrection didn't happen, it helps people go- be good people. If the Apostle Paul were here, he would disagree with that. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul taught that if the resurrection didn't happen, Christians are fools. First Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says this, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. Worthless. You are still in your sin. Those then who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. If we have put our hope in Christ for his life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. If the Apostle Paul were here, I think he would say to us this morning if this isn't true, please go to Morning Glory and find a brunch miracle. Don't waste your time in here. Don't drink juice instead of wine. Go drink real, go drink, have a mimosa right now. Save yourselves. So Christianity isn't a, a, a cool new morality with some value. It's either a hoax, or a, sham, it's a hoax or a sham if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Christianity rises and falls on whether or not the resurrection happened. Now, as we all hear about the resurrection this morning, there's different ways you could respond to the account in John 20 I just read. I've got four different options for you this morning. You might be like, I'm not those. I'm a fifth one. Cool. <laughs> it's fine. Everything I'm going to talk about applies to everyone here. Uh, You are a disciple, which we see in the text. You're indifferent. You're deceived or you're doubting. Okay. Now, I just want to say there could be some crossover on some of these. Okay. But just ask yourself, God, what do you want me? If there is a God, what do you want me to know about Jesus and my relationship to him and my relationship to what he has done? Okay, so the first group is the disciples. Okay, now a disciple is someone who's admitted they are apart from God, that they cannot make it on their own. This is a person who's admitted uh, that they are a part of a reason. They are part of the reason why the world is so broken. They admit I am a sinner who needs help. A disciple is not a really good Christian. It's not the person who's better than you. This is a person who knows there's a whole lot wrong with them and a whole lot right about Jesus, and they want Him. And they're following him. The word disciple, in Greek, it's metheta, it means learner or apprentice or pupil. So they're a student of Jesus. In other words, they're learning to live and love like Jesus. And I love the word learner because it implies process. These people are not perfect. They are in process. But they're absolutely in a process. They don't stay the same for 30 years and are unmoved by Jesus. No, Jesus changes his people slowly but surely. Um, Disciples aren't better than you if you're not a Christian. They should never be self-righteous. A self-righteous Christian should be an oxymoron because if you think you can be self-righteous and be a disciple of Jesus at the same time, you are um, what the ancient theologians called wrong. Because to become a Christian is to admit that you are not good, that you deserve God's judgment, and that you need saving. A true disciple of Jesus is most similar to a person who has cancer and is in treatment. I know I'm sick, and I know I need help outside of me. A self-righteous Christian is like someone looking down on someone who's unaware that they have cancer, or has a worse cancer than they do. I'm terminal three, you're terminal two. (laughs) Whatever, you're terminal two, I'm terminal three, whatever. I'm terminal two, you're terminal three, right? Your cancer is worse than mine. Your sin is worse than mine. That's not the point. The point is we're all sick, And, and Jesus said he came for a doctor, he came as a doctor for the sick, not those who think that they're well. And Jesus wasn't saying that, that there are people who are well spiritually apart from him. He was saying the only people who go to doctors are people who think they're sick, or their parents make them go, or their wife makes them go. So don't let people who claim to be Christians on TV or in politics fool you or harsh family members fool you. Disciples should never be self-righteous. Church is a hospital, not a country club. The way you get in is you go, I can't. Uh, I'm sick. I need help. Also, the hospital analogy for Christianity is important because not only would it be absurd to look down on others who need help, it would also be weird if no one at the hospital ever got better. Right? you like, you're going to everyone who goes to the hospital, none of them get better. A true disciple of Jesus is someone who is in process. They're not perfect, but they are being transformed day by day, little by little. From one degree of glory to the next it's like someone in treatment at a hospital we're in treatment and the treatment is the love of God that is poured into our hearts day in and out by the Holy Spirit and he empowers us to learn to live a life of love towards people who are not like us and towards God Jesus calls us to love our enemies and our families and our spouses and our kids and our friends Learning not to just love people who are the same religion or socioeconomic status or ethnicity or sexual orientation or gender or style, but even learning to love enemies. We live in a polarized culture right now where people think, if you disagree with me, I get to hate you. Jesus says, disagree and love them. Disciples are learning to love people they disagree with. And when they fail to do that, you know what they do? They apologize. They do what therapists call it. They call it reparative work. I'm seeking to repair the damage I've caused in the relationship. So disciples are also learning to repent of their hypocrisy. I often hear people say, man, Christians are hypocrites. Uh, And you know what? I'm just going to, full disclosure, Christians are hypocrites. I am a hypocrite. Spoiler alert, though, you are too. Webster's uh, dictionary's definition of hypocrisy is the practice of claiming to have moral standards or beliefs to which one's own behavior does not conform. Hypocrisy is failing to personally live up to your own standards while holding others to those same standards, okay? Um, How many of you guys think lying is wrong, right? Generally, right? Now, there's like moral theory, moral development, but generally, lying's wrong, right? Uh, uh, Pretty much all of us would say that, Uh, but what's wild is is there was a, a UMass, University of Massachusetts study on lying and they found that 60% of people lie at least once in a 10-minute conversation. Robert Feldman, the psychologist who conducted the study, said, when they were watching themselves on videotape, people found themselves lying much more than they thought they had. <laughs> the average American lies two times a day. Okay? This means we're all hypocrites. How many of you believe that eating healthy and exercising will make you healthier? Okay? How many of you guys want to be healthier? How many guys are uh, eating healthy and exercising to the level that you think is good? You can put it up your hand if you do think you are. Yeah, okay? it's like four of us, right? You're hypocrites. <laughs> now the good news. Now, now, what would be dumb is to go. You know what? Because I'm not doing it. Because some people who believe in healthy eating aren't doing it. Healthy eating's not real, man. I heard carne asada. Maybe there's weird diets now, right? Carne asada is the same as a to- as a vegetable. You're like, all right. <laughs> Now, the good news here is hypocrisy is easy to end. You can end it in the church and in your life. Here's how you can end hypocrisy. Uh, Be perfect. You guys down? Live in a way that's completely consistent with what you say you believe all the time. Get rid of all your sins, mistakes, and impulses. Second option, that's kind of hard. Second option is more what our culture is doing. Throw all standards out the window. (laughs) You know how to to not, not meet moral standards? Don't have any. Can't get rid of your tendency to screw up? Get rid of your standards. Deep down, we don't want a world with no standards. Maybe for us, but for others, we want them. Because we're made in God's image, we yearn for justice when injustice is carried out. Even if we just want to believe we're just randomly highly evolved animals with no creator, we still know in our hearts, man, there's more. And by the way, theistic evolution is totally fine if you're a Christian. But, but, But... but, but, but to go, man, you're, you're randomly created on accidents, Man, you know that's not true. But so, one, be perfect. Two, get rid of standards. Number three, do your best to live up to the standards. But when you fail, you can admit that you didn't live up to the moral standards you hold. You apologize. You don't pretend and hold others to it. You admit, man, we should all be living up to this, and, and we're not which is the only option for a faithful follower of Jesus. So every human's hypocritical, but the follower of Jesus should be owning their hypocrisy, broken-hearted when they fail to love God and neighbor as Jesus has called them to. Also, I want to say that the existence of hypocrites in the Christian church is not logical evidence for why Jesus didn't rise from the dead. That's really important. You'd be embracing a logical fallacy if you were to d- to say that um people can misrepresent people can misrepresent us never mind God um have you ever had a friend who said that you said something to someone else to bolster their position in the argument you ever a friend is just venting kind of wildly venting and you're like I'm not going to get in front of that train you just go wow they're like right I hate Mary I hate Mary I hate Mary you're like man mm, I could see how you could yeah and then Mary calls you I heard you hate me what Ruth said you hate me Ruth said you guys agree you said yes I hate Mary right uh, I mean this one this happened with my kids once one time I was walking down the stairs at my house and I overheard my um one of my sons I'm not gonna name names <laughs> talking to his little sister who was two and he said dad said you need to give me your candy <laughs> so it's not true so, what charlatans do on TV. You have private jets and defame the name of Jesus. Preachers and sneakers, all that garbage. It's like, God wants you to give me your money. It's like, ah, uh, it's not exactly what God said. A follower of Jesus is someone who, who, in light of the evidence of Easter, has said, I believe Jesus is who he said he is. That he can reconcile me to God, that I need forgiving, and that he can forgive me, and that he can teach me to live in a counterintuitive, abundant life. And I'm in a lifelong learning process of becoming like him. So there's the disciple. Number two is the indifferent, the indifferent. Uh, When it comes to responding to Jesus' resurrection, this person essentially says, I'm chill, bro. Uh, This just isn't my thing, right? If you're indifferent, if this is you, you might think, I'm not not hostile to Christians or or to Jesus. Uh, Christians believe ridiculous stuff, but I'm not mad at them for it. I have all kinds. I have social media. People believe all kinds of ridiculous stuff. That's just their flavor. I'm more like, you do you, I'll do me. Now, if this is you, um, someone really encouraged you to be here this morning because otherwise you'd either be napping or brunching. That is a verb. You can look it up. Exercising, maybe working ahead on a project for work. But if this is you, you don't really have intellectual objections to the faith. You might ask, you know, how do we know the resurrection happened? But but here's the thing. If I gave you a book full of scholars, historians, and scientists who give credible evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, you wouldn't read it because you're indifferent. Now, here's what the indifferent person who thinks they're too chill to worship Jesus doesn't realize. They're actually a worshiper. We all worship something whether we realize it or not. And while this person may be indifferent to Jesus, they're not indifferent to everything, right? Um, we might not get down on our knees and bow down to something and, and sing it songs, but we all worship something. Uh, David Foster Wallace, an atheist, intellectual author, and professor, said this about worship at a commencement speech in 2005, shortly before his death. Here's some bits and pieces of that speech. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual-type thing to worship is that pretty much everything else you will worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. You'll never feel you have enough. And it's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million different deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, and you will often feel weak and afraid. You will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Close quote. We all have something we sacrifice time, money, energy, and affection to if we're honest. John Tyson, a pastor in New York City, writes about how normal worship can seem when it isn't the worship of Jesus. He says this, binge watching entire seasons of TV shows and one night on Netflix, normal. Spending $4,000 on a trip to Europe, normal. Training hours a week at the gym to maintain our looks, normal. Joining a fantasy sports league and tracking it like a Wall Street trader, normal. Working 70 hours a week to the neglect of your family, normal. Normal. Listening to political podcasts or news sources for three to five hours a day, normal. Devoting your life to serving Jesus, extreme. Probably unhealthy. <laughs> what I want to ask the person who doesn't worship Jesus this morning is how is worshiping what you are worshiping working out for you? If you're honest with yourself, and you don't need to tell us today, but we all have something we look to that we think can give us what only God can, but it never delivers. Maybe you look to work to feel important, but it leads to burnout, the neglect of your closest family and friends, isolation and anxiety. Success never lasts. You, you have power, but everyone hates you. Or maybe you look to sex and romance to feel loved, your ultimate sense of love. But it leads to drama, a broken heart, codependency, abuse, jealousy, and a sense of emptiness because deep down, you know so many of your relationships are actually you using people for how they can make you feel about yourself, not you loving them. Maybe you look to money for security, but markets are never secure. I can go on and on. But friend, what I want to say to you this morning is Jesus can and does offer us something uh, incredible when we worship and follow him. So maybe you're like, maybe you're like, ah, I think I'm a disciple. Maybe you're here and you're like, man, I think I'm indifferent. Maybe you're here and you're deceived. Now, the thing about deceived people, tough thing about being deceived, you don't know what you don't know. <laughs> um, you've been deceived. And, and so uh, to help clarify what I mean by deceived, I mean these are fake disciples with fake confidence. They think they're following Jesus, but they aren't. Uh, a few years ago now, a bunch of people and a friend group of mine all got engaged around the same time. And a mutual friend of theirs had a family member who was a jeweler. And that friend was like, I got you, bro. Girl, whatever. Diamonds. I got, I got diamonds. Uh, my, You know, I got a family member, jewelry store. Uh, all got great deals. By the way, Stephen Hopkins has an aunt who has a jewelry store. This is not about Stephen <laughs> at all, okay? His aunt is fire, okay? <laughs> Just, full disclosure. All right. So they all got deals, like great deals, around 20% off what they would have paid at most jewelry stores. And then a few years later, one of the wives wanted to get something done to her ring. I don't know what she wanted done. I'm not sure if she was kind of high-maintenance divish, wanted to upgrade every you know, 10 seconds. Or if she got pregnant, her, her fingers were swollen, she needed a bigger ring. Or like uh, My wife found out she was allergic to white gold, which was a bummer because I gave her a white gold ring. <laughs> she needed to constantly have it redipped, new setting, whatever. But either way, they went into a different jeweler to find out what they could trade her ring in for. And what they found out was that the ring was worth about 5% of what they thought it was worth. And that was because the diamond that she had worn on her finger was not actually a diamond, it was a cubic zirconia, a diamond look-alike. And in her case, a diamond counterfeit. Because a one-carat diamond retails for around $1,500, and a brand-new CZ retails for around $25. As they checked in with their other friends, they all had an awful discovery, and that was that they all had cubic zirconias, not diamonds person did go to jail if you're wondering and it's also not Steve's aunt (laughs) now that story is so striking to me because this couple had that ring for around three years it was so close to this woman it was on her person and for three years a counterfeit was so close to her it was touching her and she thought it was genuine the entire time On the surface, it looked like a genuine diamond. It glistened like a genuine diamond. It felt like a genuine diamond, but at its substance, it was a counterfeit all along. And I bring up that story today because I want to talk about the difference between counterfeit and genuine true disciples. Again, the true disciple isn't perfect, that I mentioned earlier, but they are actually following Jesus. Right, so so the true disciple, uh, one way I've heard it described this way, and I think it's really helpful. If they were on trial for being a Christian— there would be enough evidence to convict them of following Jesus in the first degree with planning and intention. Like you could look at their life and go, oh, that's not like everyone around them in their culture. They're doing something a little bit different. That's not just like everyone in their family is not following Jesus. They're doing something different. So again, the indifferent person we just talked about is like, this Jesus stuff isn't for me. The deceived person is like, yeah, I'm a Jesus person. Yeah, I'm a Christian. You go, well, what does that mean, Right. And you look at their lives, and, and again, they may love words like Jesus, God, or Bible, but they don't actually follow the Jesus of the Bible. I heard a story recently about a guy who was preaching at a church, and, uh, and he said, um, uh, ter- he, he was, he was teaching the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, he said, if someone strikes you, turn the other cheek. And the guy said, where did you get this socialist garbage? It's a hardcore conservative guy. And he goes, uh, the teaching of Jesus Christ. If they had to fill out a survey, they would absolutely check Christian. But what they mean by that, though, is they aren't atheists, they sure aren't Muslim, and they aren't Jewish. The deceived usually have a very loose relationship with the church, which is the bride of Christ. Like Easter is an unusual Sunday for the deceived person. For the authentic disciple, Easter isn't really that special. It's pretty similar to what we do most Sundays. You know, I have a funner shirt on than normal. But this is kind of what you do every Sunday. You're here. Or you're somewhere worshiping Jesus with a community of Jesus worshipers. But by and large, it's just another Sunday. Matter of fact, they worship Jesus every day of their life. They talk to Jesus every day. But for the deceived, the false disciple, Easter is a big change from their normal Sunday morning. They're doing something different. Now, I'm not picking on people who only go to church twice a year, because that would make it sound like the answer to your life is church, and it isn't. But it is symptomatic of someone who cares about the things Jesus cares about. Again, if you were to ask the deceived person about their faith and how they became a follower of Jesus, they'll answer something like, I've always been a Christian, or my family's Christian, or I do my best to believe in God. In James chapter 2, he says this, verse 19, he says, You believe that God is one. Even the demons believe, and they shudder. How many of you guys think um, demons are disciples of Jesus? A fun theological exercise. No, okay, yeah, no, I don't think so either. Senseless person, are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? So James is pretty, thug life here, he's pretty direct. Modern day translation, this would be like, you're celebrating Easter. Awesome. Uh, Everyone knows about Easter in your culture. But do you follow the Jesus of Easter? I'm not asking how is what happened on Easter Sunday changing your schedule this morning that you're here How is it changing your life, how you treat people, how you approach marriage or sex or generosity? The deceived can't answer that question. Again, the authentic disciple doesn't have life figured out, and they aren't better than the the fake disciple, the deceived disciple. All they know is they have a huge need, and Jesus met that need, and they're actively seeking to become like him. And if you think this might be you, can you be honest with yourself for a moment? Do you really want Jesus? Do you want to move from lip service about Jesus to a life of intimacy with Jesus and obedience to Jesus? So how has Jesus changed your life? How has what happened on Easter changed your life? And how have you become more like Jesus than you were five years ago or 10 years ago or 20 years ago whenever you said your faith journey started? What you need to know is that the deceived person is in the same space spiritually as the indifferent person or the atheist atheist, even though they believe in God. The Jewish leaders who crucified Jesus taught the same scriptures he did and on paper worshiped the same God but they did not actually have a relationship with said God. If you're here today because your parents invited you or at our church let's be honest your kids invited you or your siblings invited you and you think you fit into this category our goal today is not to make you feel condemned but to go Jesus is awesome. Do you want to hear more about him. He longs to begin a real relationship with you. Again, if that if you think that might be you and you're not sure, we'd love to talk to you about it in a non-judgmental way. There'll be people down to pray here in a second. Also, Alpha is a great spot to figure out what you believe and why. Like, What do you believe about Jesus? And then lastly, I um, the last group of people I want to talk about are the doubters, the doubters. And these guys get a bad rep often. You might have heard um, the story about doubting Thomas, right? Like, oh, what a doubting Thomas. Like, just for a second, if you think about a loved one of yours who's passed away and then uh, someone else who loved that person, let's you know, parent passes away and then a sibling comes up. He's like, hey, dad's alive again. You'd be like, I hope that's true, but like probably you're in trouble probably you're not okay. Grief's complicated. This feels like bargaining, you know, like I saw a golf club move, you know, or whatever. You wouldn't, right, you'd, you'd be skeptical, right? So, so doubt's not inherently bad. Jude says, in the book of Jude, he says, be kind to those who doubt, not yell at them and pick at them and all this garbage. Like, like be kind to them, create space for them to wrestle through their doubts. Because often d- people who are doubting, like, you don't doubt if you don't really care about it. It's not a wrestle. You don't wrestle about stuff you don't care about. I never sit, I never lie awake at night like, man, are there unicorns? <sighs> My daughter Olivia thinks there's unicorns in China. There's like a book we have on unicorns, like a fake National Geographic book. I feel like we're lying. We probably should just tell her like, hey, you know. <laughs> She's like, unicorns are mostly extinct except for around here. And it's China's the biggest country in that region. <laughs> Look, she hits the Shanghai airport. She's gonna be bummed out, man. So, like, if you're doubting, it's because you care. There's a story in the Gospels where a man with a sick child wants Jesus to heal his child. And the man says to Jesus, I believe, but help my unbelief. The man says to Jesus, uh, um, I, I, I'm open. I, I want to know. Like, I'm hoping you can do this. But, man, I'm part of me is like, I don't know. I don't see people get healed every day. I've got a journey with, with a, a sick daughter. I've been let down a lot. So I struggle. And so doubt could look like that moment where we ask, you know, why, God, how could you? Multiple people I love have experienced deep mental health issues and psychosis. Multiple people I love have experienced sexual assaults and abuse. And I've wrestled with God over the years about this, like, how could you allow this to happen So maybe it's for you. It's like, where is God? I want to believe in a a God, a loving, powerful God, but I struggle with this. Or maybe for you, it's it's church hurt. Jesus said, by the way you love me, men and women will know that you're my disciples and that I came from God. That's what he says in John. The inverse has to be true. By the way that you don't love each other, people might go, I don't know if this is real. Gossip, division, self-righteousness, abuse, cover-ups, yuck. Like I'll pass. I already have a dysfunctional family. I don't need a second one. Maybe you've watched the way the church has treated the LGBT community or women and you cringe. Maybe you've heard science isn't compatible with the gospel. Um, by the way, scientific laws imply that there's a creator, but we can get into that later. By the way, your worship leader today, Ruth, is a scientist for a living. Maybe the Bible just seems crazy to you. It seems crazy to me sometimes. My favorite podcast, Tim Mackey, uh, the Bible Project, is called My Strange Bible. I want to say that it's okay to be a doubting person. God can work with a doubting person. There are two words that that describe people that are struggling to believe in the scriptures. Scholars have sought to distinguish between these two words. And in English, uh, I'd say the two words are doubt and unbelief. And they're not the same thing. Doubt and unbelief. Doubt says, I'm unsure of what is right, but I really want to know. Unbelief says, I don't care about what is right. Doubt is pursuing the truth wherever it may lead courageously. Unbelief is when you're just, as con- you're just content with what you believe. Doubt is I'm struggling to see evidence. Unbelief is I'm, su- I'm suppressing evidence. Unbelief is I'm not interested in God. I'm not an atheist. I'm an anti-theist. Doubt says I don't want to know the truth and I won't stop until I believe I've found it. So those settled in unbelief likely aren't in this room. And if they are, they're not interested in what I have to say. But for those who doubt but are open... Not the unbelief, but the the doubt. I want to say that this church would love the privilege of getting to walk alongside you while you figure out what you believe and why. While you wrestle with doubt. Um, If your doubt's tied to a particular topic, I would encourage you to go uh, on our website. Uh, We did a sermon series called Awkward Questions. Some of the questions we answered in that series were, how could a good God allow the world to be so messed up? Why has the church so badly mistreated the LGBT community over the years? How can a rational person believe in the God of the Bible and science? Doesn't Christianity denigrate women? Why do churches seem to be so full of hypocrites if Jesus is real? On and on it goes. Um, I'm not saying I answer those questions perfectly or that the speakers who spoke those weeks answered those questions perfectly. But there's a a journey you could start to explore. And I'd encourage you to. Last thing I want to say to doubters is this. If you doubt, I would encourage you to honestly look into the evidence. But also encourage you to honestly look at the source of your doubts. They often are not intellectual. They're often emotional and volitional. Uh, Scott Sauls, an author, wrote this. He said, Recently I spoke with a man who has heard the story of Jesus and the resurrection several times in his life. Yet this man seemed deeply defensive about, even overly hostile to, the idea of becoming a Christian himself. I pointed out to my friend that he seemed not merely inclined to disagree with the gospel message, but actually prone to attack it. I asked him why this was so. After a quiet pause, he answered, Okay, Scott, I'll tell you the truth. I'll tell you the real reason why I dislike Christianity. It's not because the evidence is unconvincing to me. In fact, the opposite is true. But I still don't ever want to become a Christian because if I do, Jesus will ask me to forgive my father for the ways that he hurt me. I have had many similar conversations in which the person in front of me when push came to shove had few issues with the rational aspect of faith but used the rational arguments as a smokescreen. For each of these friends, beneath the surface was something about Christian discipleship, something about the narrow path of following Jesus in every area of life that bothered them on a visceral level. The resurrection absolute lordship of Jesus come as a package deal. If Jesus is risen from the dead, then it means we are accountable to all that Jesus said, namely that we are sinners without hope apart from him, and that our lives belong completely to him. Christ is risen means that he has a claim on our lives. He is the boss of us. He has full rights of us. He is Lord, close quote. Now, I'm not saying anyone who is a doubter will become a disciple of Jesus if you look into the claims, but I'm saying they're worth looking into. And that, I don't want you to miss out for a reason other than the one that you're being honest about. And so if a disciple of Jesus invite you to this worship gathering today, I'd encourage you to follow up and ask them if they'd be interested in looking into the claims of Jesus with you, uh, if they don't have time for that or whatever, I'd gladly sit down with you—your know, coffee, meal, beer, whatever you want to do—and explore with you personally what that is. But better than that, I can encourage you enough to check out Alpha uh, with that—that that the thing with the QR code, our dialogue series for spiritual seekers to explore what they believe in a safe, non-judgmental context. Maria was up here describing earlier, and so this Easter, I want to challenge you to be honest with yourself: What group of people do you think you belong to? But as we close, I'm going to ask this. Are you, are you a disciple? Someone who knows apart from Jesus, you have nothing. But because you have him, you have everything. Though you struggle and forget what matters because of the stress in this life, God is making all things new, including yourself. Number two, the indifference. Maybe you're here and you're realizing, I'm passionate about the wrong stuff. I'm worshiping the wrong thing. I'm not even sure if it's Jesus yet. But yeah, what I've been worshiping hasn't been working out. Uh, For those in the room uh, who might be deceived, again, you'd claim to be a Christian, but deep down, you know Jesus isn't the Lord of your life. There's a lot of stuff that's kind of MC Hammer territory. Can't touch this, can't touch my money, can't touch my emotions, can't touch my relationship, my marriage, whatever it is. And then lastly, the doubting. Those of you who are interested but assume the claims aren't true, but you actually haven't looked into them yet in an honest, intellectually honest way. resurrection is such good news if you want to put your trust in jesus today and experience his power and his love while surrendering control of your life over to him we'd love to do that with you or start that journey with you jesus thank you for your body that was broken for us the blood that was shed for us you did for us what we could not do for ourselves you reconciled us to god not because we deserved it but because you loved us you laid down your life for us Jesus, I think that you didn't stay dead, that the only thing left in the tomb was the linen that was wrapped around you, death was not wrapped around you, just that linen, that you walked out in victory into newness of life, it's kind of the first one to do it, and so Lord, would you give us hope this morning, that you're making all things new, even death can be reversed through Jesus, that one day death will be gone for you we not take that news lightly, would you give us appropriate reactions to it, the responses to it, our beautiful King, it's your name we pray, amen, Thank
1: you. Hi guys, just in closing, um, something that I wanted to share is uh, the program that Clive and I have been doing there's this phrase that they use over and over again and it's called uh, the parents are the lead learners and I think sometimes as disciples of Jesus um, you think that you have to be perfect or do it perfectly um, but really we are just the lead learners um, in the in our own lives and the lives of the circle the friend groups that we're a part of um, and That brings like a humility uh, with it. Um, And then also, so I think that was like the disciples. Also someone that's doubting or just curious. um, Something that's coming to mind is that God can figure out the details of your life um, that need to change or uh, need to be different. And all you have to do is just respond to him and enter a relationship with him. And he'll work out the details. So let me pray for us, Jesus. I thank you so much that you uh, that you make a way for us uh, to be connected to you. We know that so many things um, can be good, but ultimately, being in a relationship with you is what we were created for. I pray that you would uh, encourage us this week as. We go that you would speak to us um, and that you would give us ears to hear um, what it is that you're saying. Um, Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd give us all um, the gift of faith uh, to believe um, and that you would help us with our unbelief. In Jesus' name, amen. Also, lastly, um, if there's new to Restored cards, if you did want to fill one out, you can do that and then drop it off in the back and Alpha this upcoming week. Have a great Sunday, guys.